we're getting ready to have a live session. It's Billy Holiday. Billy Holiday. So I don't play jazz. I'm not a swinger. My good friend Jason Crane. Now it's jazz. Now it's jazz. Now it's now it's now it's jazz. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is a jazz interview podcast. It's more than just music. It's the lives and the stories of the people who play and write about and love jazz. It's also more than a podcast. If you visit the show's website at thejazzsession.com, you'll find interviews, live jazz news, links to other jazz sites, and a whole lot more. On this episode, my guest is Russian pianist Misha Piatagorsky. His new record is called Uncommon Circumstance. Misha is joined here by bassist Hans Glavishnig and drummer Ari Honig for his tune, Superhero. My guest is Misha Piatagorsky. He's the winner of the Thelonious Monk Composers Competition in 2004. He is the pianist behind a number of albums with a variety of different bands and the producer of a number of albums as well. His brand new album is called Uncommon Circumstance and uh, features a great trio of Hans Galvishnig on bass and Ari Honig on drums, and the compositions, uh, all but one, are the compositions of Misha Piatagorsky. Uh, Misha, thanks a lot for being here. Oh, actually, all but two. All but two? Yeah. One is uh, written by my father. Oh, no kidding. Okay, great. Let's actually start there. Um, I know your father was a, a theater composer, is that right, in Russia? Yeah, he was. In, in, uh, in the Cold War in Mother Russia, he was... The uh, musical director and composer for the Taganka Theater, which was a really cool, uh, really cool theater in Moscow, which put up, uh, put on a lot of sort of uh, progressive uh, plays and musicals, um, you know, about the West and uh, sort of jazz, rock, operas, that kind of stuff. 
Was it kind of an underground theater, or was it a little bit, a little bit underground? Yeah, but it was very well known. You know, with uh, directors such as Lubimov, and uh, you know, it was a, uh, it was a really nice gig for him. He had a good time. And so, did you first become exposed to music and composition? I'm guessing by watching what your dad was doing. Um. Yeah. Actually, what happened was uh, after I was born, my father started. Uh, writing songs for me as a kid. Uh, he started writing children's songs. And, uh, you know, alongside with of what he was doing at the Ganga Theater. And he started uh, getting, getting uh, he started collaborating with a bunch of lyricists, really hip lyricists in, in, in Moscow. And he started uh, sort of writing these um, children-type songs for me to sing which have a lot of double meaning, like sort of a lot of the political uh, double meanings about, you know, going to the West. This is, you know, this is during the Cold War when everyone was behind the, you know, we were all behind the Iron Curtain. So uh, this is how I started being exposed to all these songs. And he started sort of, he and my mom would sing them to me and he would play with his friends. And I think when I was five years old, I actually even performed some of these songs and then the Moscow National Television, something like that. Um, and actually that song that that's on the record, Fishing Boats, uh, was one of them. It was one of the songs that I've always you know, I've always known from, from my childhood. So I um, I thought that it would it was the right thing to do and to include it on this record. So the tune Fishing Boats, it has lyrics in its original mm-hmm. form, and yeah. what is, is the Fishing Boats uh, a double it, meaning reference? Yeah, of course, it's a metaphor. The whole song is about, uh, it's Fishing Boats is the English, uh, is the English title. The Russian title, which is Achungustiat Karabriki, which means, um, let's see, how do I translate that? What, uh, the <laughs> what are the boats feeling melancholy about? That's a sort of a loose translation. And basically, the lyric uh, is about how, you know, when when the boats go out to sea, uh, what are they missing? So, you know, there's a lot of sort of double hidden meanings behind, you know, in, in that song. And all of those songs had, you know, all of his songs that he was writing all had that sort of uh, double meaning uh, sort of in conjunction with the West and, and what was happening in the world. So you were born in the early 70s, and you started playing piano when you were about five, or even earlier than that? Five, yeah. About five? And yeah, I think so. at that time you were playing classical piano? Yeah, I started, you know, everyone starts with classical music. Sure. And I started with classical, and uh, I was basically classically trained until I started sort of discovering jazz on my own. My dad made it very clear for me that he wasn't going to teach me anything. That it was, if I wanted to learn anything, I would have to sort of discover it on my own. <laughs> and why do you think he did that? Well, he felt that that's, that's, the, that's, the way, uh, that's the right way of doing it. You know, if you want to learn how to play jazz, you've you got to sort of discover, a, invent your own bicycle. And I totally agree with him, actually. I mean, at some point, you know, he, at, at, some, uh, at some point he hooked me up with a teacher. And he said, okay, now it's time for you to go study with a jazz pianist. Because he's not really a jazz pianist. So, uh, but he definitely, uh, you know, as a kid, I would watch him sit down at the piano and, and play Beatles songs and sing the Beatles songs. He, you know, he's from the Beatles, Beatles generation. 
And um, I, I was always very jealous of the fact that he could do that. You know, and all, you know, and I had the ability to, you know, I would play the same songs for half a year. I would learn my Rachmaninoff and my Chopin. And that's all I was able to do. When you were eight years old is when you and your family came to the U.S., is that right? Uh, yeah. And why did you guys do that? Was that your father's decision? I'm a Russian Jew. And um, at some point, you know, Russia is a very anti-Semitic country. Always has been. Um, and at some point I came home from playing outside with the kids. I was about five or six years old. You know, I came up to my father and I asked him, Dad, what is, you know, what is a dirty, what does a dirty Jew mean? It's a, it's a Russian word. You know, it's a, a, a sort of a translation of like a kike, right? And so I sort of asked him, you know, what does that word mean? And my dad said, why? And I said, well, that's, the kids were calling me that you know, in the backyard. So that's when he sort of looked at my mother and he made a decision that it was time to go. And the, the, the you know, the going process was extremely difficult. Uh, you had to apply for a visa to leave and you had to wait. And we had, you know, we waited for two years to get the visa, the permission to leave Moscow. And in that time, you can't work. You lose your job, basically. You become an enemy of the state. So my father, read, you know, he had to stop working at the Gun Cathedral because that's, that's the way it was. And so basically my grandfather supported us while, uh, for, for about two years. But then we got the acceptance to leave because my parents had no, quote-unquote, secrets. And then uh, we, we went, went to the West. When you were asking to leave, you were, your, or when your family was asking to leave, they were asking to leave permanently? Yeah, of course. You become an enemy of the state. And you're asking to leave for political slash religious reasons. You become basically we were political refugees when we came to the country. So were you you were seeking political asylum in the U.S. Yeah, all, all the immigrants were are, are uh, at that time were considered political refugees. And who came to the U.S. Your your mom and dad and you and and my brother. Your brother. Okay. My brother was was <laughs> well, basically my parents kept waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting to get permission to leave and. They weren't getting it, and they wanted to have another kid. So my mom got pregnant. She had my baby brother, who was eight years younger than me. And uh, a month later, we got a letter saying, okay, you have three weeks to leave. <laughs> Pack your bags and get the hell out. Did your father have something lined up in the States to do when he got here? Nope. It was a 100% a, um, it was a shot in the dark. We had some friends who were inviting us to come to New Jersey, to a community where there's no Russians. The friends were, he was an artist, and his wife was a piano teacher. And what my father started doing the minute he lost his job, being a musical director, was he started learning how to become a piano technician. And he started working, like, with a great master. And so he really, um, he was honing his skills on how to become a piano tuner and technician, because he knew when, when we would come to America, he couldn't support a family of four being a being a musician, and so by the time we came to the states, he already was a, you know was a great tuner and a great uh, restorer and uh, and so that's what he became, and uh, he started working. I mean, he was prepared to do anything: work in a car garage, fixing cars, whatever it needed, you know, whatever needed to be done to be able to support his family. But he uh, fortunately it it worked out in a way that he. Uh, 
he started getting calls. People would come to the house, to the apartment, pick him up, drive my father to their, uh, you know, home, and he would fix their piano, and and that's how it all started. And today he's considered, you know, one of the one of the major, one of the greatest piano technicians and restorers in in, in the area where he lives. Did any of you speak English when you arrived? My father spoke. <laughs> At least he thought he spoke English. He had, you know, his vocabulary. I mean, he learned. He was studying English in in school, I guess. But uh, <laughs> what happens when you come to a country? You realize how much you don't know. So he really he he had an ability to communicate a little bit. But I mean, there's many funny stories about that. But basically, we all started from zero. I I knew no English, and I went directly to third grade, and I started, you know, learning uh, learning English from from my friends, from from kids. This was in the early '80s. Was there? You weren't in, like, an ESL program or something? You were just picking it up as you went along? You know, ESL program didn't really exist at the time. I was, you know, we were the second Russian family that immigrated to that area. We, uh, it was Somerville, New Jersey, and I was like a Martian. I was like a, like a freak show. People came around to our apartment just to look at us. You know, like, who are these people from a different world? So it was like just the beginning of that. So they, they, I had a, I had an English as a second language ESL teacher that would, I think, in school I would spend like one hour with her a week, or maybe a few times a week for the first year that I was in school, and that was it. I mean, I became fluent in one year. You know, when you're when you're eight years old, it's you absorb everything like a like a sponge. So where in here did you first start picking up the the taste for jazz? Where did you first get introduced to it? My father always loved Oscar Peterson, and there was always there was always jazz being played at the house. So, you know, he's always he's always been a big fan of Ella and, you know, Satchmo. And so I sort of, uh, I've heard that, you know, growing up. Blood, Sweat, and Tears. <laughs> the Beatles, that was, you know, that was my, that's the record collection that, it, that, I, that I come from. So during all this time, when you, when you moved to the States, did you continue to study with a piano teacher? Yes, I uh, of course I when I when I came to the states, I st- you know, I started studying with uh I've always had Russian teachers, so you know, I, sh- I started studying classical piano. Continued studying classical piano. You had Russian teachers even when you were in Somerville, New Jersey? Yes, I've always had only Russian teachers <laughs> teaching me classical piano. The Russian school, uh, you know, they always stayed in the bag. <laughs> well, it's produced a lot of great musicians, so I guess you can't uh, you can't fault it for that. So actually, yeah, I mean, I had, I mean, I, I started studying. My last classical teacher is a woman that I started studying with when I was about ten years old. That my parents finally found, and she really just, I, I totally attribute my sound to her. All she did with me is work with me on on sound for all for the, all the years. You know, from being I studied with her probably from about age of ten till about 20 years old because she was she, she taught at Rutgers also and that's where I went I did my undergraduate I completely attribute most of my musicality to uh, to her she was a big person in my life
So you were talking before about your father having a lot of jazz records in his collection by a lot of the masters, Oscar Peterson, Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, in addition to the Beatles and Blood, Sweat and Tears and all the the 70s classics um, and earlier classics. When uh, were you kind of sitting at home, like playing on a piano along with these records? Or how did you first decide, oh, I'd like to try and play some of this jazz music? When I was about 16 years old, my father had this Claude Bowling record. Do you know who Claude Bowling is? Sure, yeah. This, this boogie woogie kind of jazz pianist from France. And anyway, anyway, I had a. There was this one CD in the house, which was a Claude Bowling plays boogie woogie with solo solo piano. The first track on it was this like tune called Six Eight Four Four Boogie, Boogie Woogie, something like that. I don't remember what it, what it was. And that was like the first song I ever transcribed in my life. You know, I was about sixteen years old, and I just. I realized, oh, man, I, I want to learn how to do this. And my dad said, okay, go ahead, go, figure it out. And I did. That was my sort of my offset to, uh, to, to understanding, wow, okay, so I just have to sit down and, and, and figure something out, like hear it five million times and under- to understand what's happening in one measure. And when I get it, it's mine. I own it. So that's how, uh, that's how it all started. Did the other three people in your house get heartily sick of... Hearing the six eight four four, boogie woogie uh, after a while. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. You know, my parents always. My mother had to fight with me for years about practicing. You know, about because I've always hated practicing, hated it. So you know, it, growing up, it was like a thing. I came home from school and I had to practice for two hours. I couldn't go outside and play ball or ride my bike. That's what I really wanted to do. But my, you know, that was part of my daily duties, is come home, sit down, and practice for two hours. So uh, when I actually started playing jazz and really uh, realizing that, oh, my God, this is, this is something I really want to do. I mean, I was about 17 when I realized that this is what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I always knew that I wasn't going to be a pian- classical pianist. But I used to play, like, a bunch of competitions, classical competitions, and I won a few of them, and I would get so incredibly nervous. Oh, my God. I would get so deadly nervous, and I hated that feeling of being nervous, you know, to perform. So, you know, when I actually started getting into jazz and and spending hours and hours and hours and hours at the piano, in a way, my parents were very happy, because that's, you know, they never got that out of me. And, uh, but then at some point, you know, my my dad would, I had had my, yeah, my piano was in my room always. I had my grand piano, my little Steinway grand, that baby grand that I've always, grew up on that's now in my in my room um i always had that in my bedroom growing up and you know i grew up in a small home like just a small really small three-bedroom house in jersey and um i just remember my my dad just kind of walking in and walking in at two o'clock in the morning going okay that's enough (laughs) it's enough because we can't sleep and you got to go to bed so that's uh that's the kind of thing that started happening but then I moved out pretty soon after that, so I gave them their piece. And you went to Rutgers, you said? Yeah, I did my undergraduate at Rutgers because I got to study with Kenny. Kenny Barron was my, um, from the age of 18 to 22, he was my man. That's not a bad place to start. I attribute so much of what I do to Kenny. You know, I came in completely green. I had no idea what jazz was. You know, I was just about one year studying jazz before I went to school. And then I came to Kenny, and I just realized, my God, I need to learn everything that he does. And I recorded every lesson, and I would just uh, go home and copy, try to copy what he does and how he does it. 
you know, measure by measure and uh, his his absolute perfect lines that he plays. You know, the most musical lines in the world. So that's what uh that's how I sort of started learning my vocabulary. And did he give you other pianists to listen to and other jazz artists? Yeah, of course. You would mention you should listen to this, listen to that. But, I mean, I, I was studying Kenny Barron. <laughs> I was heavily studying, studying Kenny Barron. And, that you know, the thing is, I think that's a really important thing to do, is to actually take a person who you absolutely love the way they play and to really learn to study them, to completely understand what is it that they do, how do they do it. How do they make that sound? How do they swing? How do they, you know, what are the lines that they use? What are the what? What is rhythmically the thing that they do? That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be Kenny Barron, and I was playing a lot like Kenny Barron. I'm mean, of course not as not as well as he, not as slick as he, but I was playing all his lines and blah 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 blah. And it actually took me many years to get out of that. Well, we're almost up to the present day. After you left Kenny and uh, graduated from Rutgers, you went to the Manhattan School of Music and got your master's there, right? Who did you study with at Manhattan? I, I had Jackie Byard for half a year, and then I had Iliani Elias for a year and a half. Wow, those are two different piano players. <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> Why, wow, they sound exactly the same to me. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I confuse them all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Blindfold test me. Yeah, <laughs> Come on, that's right. give me a chance. <laughs> so let's talk about the new record, which is Uncommon Circumstance. Uh, first, let's talk about the, the trio with Hans and Ari. Uh, how did you meet those guys and start playing with them? Um, actually, I've known both of them for a long time. Hans has... I met Hans when I was still in school, in, in uh, Manhattan School of Music. He graduated, I think, the year that I came in. And But we sort of... We met each other because we played on somebody's senior recital. And I, and I right away, I thought, wow, this, this guy is a bad cat. I love everything he's doing. You know, besides the fact that he grooves so heavily, he's hearing every note that I'm playing. You know, there's something, there's a relationship that pianists and bass players have that you can really tell when a bass player knows everything that you do. You know, it's, a, it's the same kind of relationship you have with a drummer. You know, when I, when I play with certain drummers, I know that everything that I do, they're in front of it. They know it, and they're, they're understanding exactly what I'm doing, and I'm working with them. You know, it's like a team, it's like a game. And with a bass player, it's exactly the same thing. I can go to any harmony I want. I can do anything in the world. And Hans knows what I'm going to do before I even do it. And that freaks you out. That freaks me out. <laughs> so I've known Hans for many, many years, and he's um, and I've always uh, adored playing with him. And he's done many projects with me. Actually, I produced many things that I've always hired, you know asked him to play on. And actually, he he played on the the when I won the Monk competition. He played bass on the tune that I you know that I produced, which is called Low Talk. Ari, I've also known for many years, and you know I've heard him. We've met, we were, we're about the same age, and we, we've played together in the past plenty of times. And, and uh, I haven't played with him in a little while, and when I started doing this project and, and writing this music for this particular record, this is sort of like the stuff that I've been playing for the past few years, I realized I really need to make a recording. I, want, I really want to put a, a trio together uh, that is going to be my, this is my new, this is what I'm doing today. And uh, his name just uh, he was his name just popped up into my head, and I emailed him and I said, "Hey man, I I want you to uh, play my new stuff with me." And uh, he's like, "Sure, absolutely." And we started we played a few gigs together, and I I realized from like the first rehearsal that this is going to be this is the trio that I'm going to record with. 
let's start talking about the music a little bit. The, uh, I mean, the music on this, is, a lot of it is very groove oriented, um, though not all of it, but very modern sounding. Uh, just talk a little bit about how kind of how you got to hear from where you were as a as a jazz piano player. How did you start playing in the style that is on this right. record? Uh, well, I went through <laughs> I went through many different did many different periods of Misha life. Yeah, I've heard uh, your earlier stuff, and I mean, there's a lot of oh, a yeah. lot of variation. Well, you know, I, I was a very much a jazz head for years, especially when I was studying in school. I was like a little bebop Nazi. I even remember a time when I, 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 I found myself once at the Jazz Vienna Festival. This is maybe 1992 or maybe 1993, something around there. And I went to the major club after, after one of the main performances, and Roy Hargrove's band was playing. And they were swinging their ass off. They were you know, doing an amazing thing. And at the end, all of a sudden, you know, Greg Hutchinson started playing like a hip-hop groove. And, you know, Roy picked up the mic and he started, like, rapping. And I was so offended. I was like, oh, what are they doing? Oh, this is horrible, you know. <laughs> I was, it was, you know, thinking back to that, it really makes me laugh. Um, and then I kind of, I got disenchanted with a little bit of trying to promote a trio when I was younger. And, and the fact that no one really cares about the music that I was playing. Then I completely stopped playing swing for, for quite some time. That's when I discovered Brazilian music, and I got heavily into Brazilian music, and I, you know, three, four years I spent playing only Brazilian music. You know, and I got, I, then I got really heavily into D'Angelo. You know, I, I totally adore D'Angelo and Erica Badu, and, uh, like, when she did that record, Mama's Gun, completely blew me away in terms of, like, the, the grooves of, like, what Love Quest plays, or whatever the drummer's name Quest Love. Quest love. Uh, so I got really heavily into that. And then I started sort of, I, at the same time, I started writing a lot of like classical music and going into that sound. And this record became like a, I started writing music that incorporated a lot of like classical harmonies. You know, like mostly of everything I play right now has, in terms of the, set, you know, the original compositions, they have all this sort of, this, this sort of neoclassical sound very traditional uh, classical harmonies. And the fact that I adore, you know, hip-hop and I adore, you know, any kind of groove, groove stuff, groove-oriented music, I kind of put those two together, you know, and I started, and, and that's how the music came out on this record, from that perspective. For how long have you been working on the tunes that are on this record? You know, some of the tunes are really old, like So High is probably the oldest song on the record. And so high, I wrote probably around seven, eight years ago. I uh, just never had a chance to record it, but it 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 seemed like the perfect song to add on this record in terms of the concept.
a lot of the songs I wrote, I lived in Israel between 2004 and 2005 for about nine months because my wife was studying there. She was, uh, you know, doing her thing. So we all went to live in Israel. And I got a lot of inspiration living there in Jerusalem. And I wrote a lot of, a lot of the tunes on the record came from there. I Fall in Love Too Easily, the standard that I play, uh, that goes into that crazy uh, vamp that, uh, that happened in Israel. Let's talk for a second about I Fall in Love Too Easily, which, as you said, goes into a crazy vamp. I mean, this tune just becomes a completely other composition well, <laughs> toward, yeah, toward the totally. end of it. Did that happen on the bandstand one night, and then you just kept working on it? No, 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 no. That's that's a way too complex vamp for me to come up on the bandstand. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it was one of the it's it was one of those compositional things. Like I sat down and I, uh, and I just worked it out one day. You know, I, I just because I, I love that song and I decided to kind of re reharmonize it, which I did. And then that vamp kind of came about. Which one writer just recently had a review of the record, and one writer called it. Uh, a Russian funeral march, which I thought was really funny, <laughs> kind of fitting, you know. Uh, and then I, and then I, it just kind of came out, you know. And I have no, and I have no way of explaining why those two are together. But um, I actually tried putting that vamp to a few other ballads. I actually was considering putting that at, at the end of um, a Lonely Butterfly, and it just didn't work. You know, it just, it was like, this is, this is the vamp to I Fall In Love Too Easily. And that's it. So what's happening for you these days in terms of uh, gigs? I know you just finished a week-long stand, right? Yeah, we just did a week in Dizzy's with Mark Murphy. He's, uh, he's my big gig that I play with. Uh, such an, such an awesome gig. I completely adore Mark because there's so much freedom and he, you know, I get to play like an orchestra underneath underneath him. And he's one of the greatest jazz singers. Hands, hands down, he is. Uh, every night is a, is an honor for me, and I get to call the band. And so it's just it's completely my band. You know, whoever I want on the gig, and then uh, the big big record release party is going to be at Iridium on April 11th with the trio with uh, Ari and um, and Hans. And if folks want to find you on the web, tell them where they can do that. MishaMusic.com, M-I-S-H-A-M-U-S-I-C, is my site, or they can just Google my name and. A bunch of things will pop up. And of course, uh, we'll have a link to that at thejazzsession.com. I really want to thank you. I, I, I dig the record. It's a, it's a great album, and uh, wish you all the best. Oh, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you uh, taking the time out to, to do this interview.
Believe it or not, that's I Fall in Love Too Easily, completely reworked by Misha Piatagorsky on his new album Uncommon Circumstance. You'll find a link to Misha's website at thejazzsession.com. Until next time, you've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. Please visit the show's website at thejazzsession.com where you'll find interviews, live jazz news, and links to other jazz sites. You'll also find links to subscribe to the show. If you can, it helps if you'll subscribe via iTunes. It's free, and it guarantees that you'll always have the newest show right there on your computer or in your MP3 player whenever you want it. I also write interviews and reviews for allaboutjazz.com, the world's largest jazz website. You'll find a link to an archive of my writing at thejazzsession.com, and you'll also find at allaboutjazz.com tons of reviews and uh, event listings, great interviews with artists. It's a really fantastic place, and you should definitely be checking out allaboutjazz.com. If you'd like to contact The Jazz Session, you can send me an email. Just send it to jason at thejazzsession.com or call 585-473-5304. You can also join the mailing list, which you'll find at thejazzsession.com. When you join, you won't get spammed. You'll just get periodic updates about the guests who appear on this show, plus other news from the jazz world and the occasional giveaway. The theme music for The Jazz Session is by The Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Session logo. On next week's show, it staggers the imagination, and I swear to God it's a coincidence, but the Jazz World Tour continues with Wayne Escoffery, who was born in London to Jamaican parents. That's seven shows in a row without repeating a nationality, which, again, I promise, is a complete coincidence. In two weeks, it continues with Mongolian harp player... Okay, now I'm kidding. Thanks very much for listening. Remember to support live jazz whenever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.